0: this is david wilson and welcome along to episode 70 of on another track yeah we've just, we've got up just over an hour so that's that's excellent and that's really spot on you can tell we are professionals
1: my birthday's coming up i thought well the birthday present i should give to myself is that on that day i got to start playing with music and recording and and get back into that world because that has always been a wonderful world
0: That's the voice this week of my guest Michael Crichton of Whitehorse Radio. He's a veteran of radio and broadcasting and is always looking for adventure. Welcome along to my podcast series On Another Track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that transform my guest's journey that help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead, then you can't go wrong with learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. I first got to meet Michael at an outside concert in 2021, and he intrigued me by his outfit. He had a beret on and looked rather suave. But what was interesting was we got talking about radio very, very quickly, and I soon learned that he was an accomplished producer and radio broadcaster. What's even more interesting about Michael is when you listen to his open mic program on Whitehorse Radio, you are amazed at the production values of that particular program. And it's amazing what you learn just by tuning in each week. So I was intrigued to find out where all this came from and how he managed to get into broadcasting. I started first by asking Michael how his family got to Canada and what was his musical infancies when he was younger.
1: Well, um... To be as, as, as brief as possible, uh, my father and mother were from uh, Austria and Romania. Uh, and uh, my, my father served with the British Army. And then as a result of that, they, may, they met, got married, moved to England, from England, came to Canada. I was born in the early 50s. And I grew up in a very creative environment. My dad was an architect. My mother was very creative. Music was a very big part in terms of listening that uh, came from my mother uh, and I grew up with the classics and then I grew up with uh, you know uh, all the other stuff like Frank Sinatra and you know etc and then I also grew up with comedy and then I was very creative as a child blah 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 got into high school I got very involved in music and theater that was my youth. I got into that. And I, you know, I mean, I've gone on to uh, have, you know, have my own studio uh, producing uh, in every medium, uh, live shows and advertising communication and music and, and all those kinds of things. And that's where I believe it or not, uh, still continue mm-hmm. to do. And I, I owe that to my dad who bought a, a Sony, tape recorder when i was about think 10 with a microphone and i and my mother bought a sound effects record and i started doing radio shows is that right seriously i was a kid and i even did commercials i even inserted commercials and somehow that is all fed into this process that is still with me to this very day that is superb what what kind of upbringing there's the reader's digest version of my my entire creative life
0: well let's dissect that a little bit because i always like the dissection process so your dad was an architect so where did he train first of all and
1: where did he practice well in romania and what was interesting is that he was an interesting guy unto himself because when he entered university he wanted to be a naval architect so he got in but he, he couldn't really make the grade so he switched and he ended up making the the list for that year for that that uh, uh, for the for those studies in architecture he was second to last and he finished at the end of when he got his degree as as the first he tied with another guy in architecture in Romania and then from there he became one of the youngest developers in Romania and I had actually found stuff on the internet uh, people who have actually documented his work in Romania. Incredible,
0: incredible. And
1: then he went to England, and then from England, and where he resurrected because the war interrupted. My dad was a Jew, and he had escaped from Romania. That he wrote a diary. That in itself is a story. He ended up as a refugee in Cyprus, then joined the British Army, and served in North Africa, going into Italy. Ends up in England. He met my my mum. In Austria and she's from a family of nobility Mm -hmm. in Austria there's a town named after her family Lex Austria and then they married of course he was a Jew so I can imagine this was like my mother really must have pissed everybody off in her family anyway they moved to England and from England to Canada and so I've got the spirit of adventure I think partly because my dad was a creative individual, and he also faced some of the most um, uh, really challenging uh, things in life that one would face as a Jew going through World War II. And so I'm the first son of that, that whole thing. And I grew up in an environment of incredible creativity. Uh, my dad was doing incredible things. He did a lot of things in Canadian architecture You know, and I kind of grew up and I got into music very early in my life when I was five. And uh, then I got into recording and then I got into rock bands in high school. I was in college and university and I got into bands and radio promotions and all kinds of things. And then, you know, my life kind of went from there and I've been doing that really all my life. And it, it, so when you started at
0: five, what, can you remember that experience and what that was like and what you actually performed? I mean, was it was it something off the radio or was it something you produced yourself? I mean, five was a
1: young age. Well, it was a combination of all those things. I mean, I remember when I was 17, I had recorded a promo for a big concert festival in Montreal and I ended up being the opening act. Incredible. So I played in front of like 10,000 people. And it was like, "Wow, you know so so what year,
0: what year was that that you did? oh that?
1: God, that would have been nineteen probably seventy six
0: ah got yeah so so what was kind of your biggest influence when it came to music though I mean, were you a blues guy, were you a rock guy, were you a combination of all those sorts jazz what what was really the thing
1: It was a combination, but I would say my influences were uh, on the keyboard, my influences were. Uh, Elton John, Leon Russell, uh, uh, Keith Emerson of Emerson Lake and Palmer, on the guitar, it was all over the place, but folk rock, Ella and a slight player in Montreal, was an influence, got on the slide. I actually did folk rock from the age of about 17 to 20, playing in Canada and various universities and everything else. And it was all original material. I never played other people's stuff. And I remember a guy in Ottawa, he comes up to me, says, Do you play any Dylan? And I remember saying to him, Does Dylan play any of my stuff? (laughs) I love it. I love it. I was very arrogant when I was young. But but that's kind of my mentality. That was my mentality. I and that kind of propelled me going west to Alberta. I got into radio by accident. Uh, from there I came to Edmonton all through radio. And then I moved out of radio and became an independent creative producer. But I was still working with radio. I was working with television stations. I was working with theater. I was working with live live events, live concerts, live shows. And I still do that to this very day. So
0: Okay, so back the bus up. Family arrived from England.
1: Where did you arrive? Montreal. And why Montreal? Well, that was where the, I guess my dad, I don't really know why. I mean, he picked that. His intention was to go to Vancouver. Right. But when he landed in Montreal, he fell in love with the city and he stayed there. He did end up retiring in Vancouver at the end of his life. But at that moment, he went, he loved Montreal and he became a very integral part architecturally. Some of the things that were put together in Montreal uh, that were were quite significant as as an architect, and I'm a kid growing up around this. I mean, you know, kind of thing. And he was very respected, and uh, and you know, I followed a lot of it, and I remember much of it, and we have it archived. My 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 eldest son is the uh, him and Suzanne, his his wife. They are the archivists, so I've handed all that stuff to them because we have a lot of uh, documentation of a lot of things that he did. But that's the environment I grew up with. My sister was a painter. Uh, she uh, studied with Arthur Lismer, who is one of the uh, the, the, uh, the the seven, uh, which is a significant uh, group, the group of seven in Canada. And uh, unfortunately she died too young at 48 of cancer. And she was just starting to break out as a painter and uh, so my my family was very visual and also musical but I was really the embodiment of that because I was studying piano I played rock I was doing stuff I mean my dad put up with me I think because the office where he worked was down the hall from what was called the playroom where the piano was and I'd be taking stuff out of the piano and sticking mics the, mic, the one microphone I had, and I would be playing stuff, listening to Elton John, and my dad never, never kind of came in and go, what the hell are you doing? He kind of let me just, you know, blow my wad, as it were, just doing whatever it was I was doing. And that was the environment I grew up in, was this creativity. And, and, and part of it was very disciplined because of my studies in classical music and theory, because I studied theory as well. And then there was what I was doing with rock and roll and learning to play guitar. And I taught myself how to play guitar at the age of 10. And then in high school, I'm playing guitar. I'm playing keyboard. I'm, I'm doing a number of things. And that has continued through my life. I still play guitar. I still play keyboards. I've done work commercially. I've done stuff for TV and then stuff for radio. But now I'm kind of in my latter years and I'm not doing as much, but I still have, I got into with Ken green who produces uh, co-produces my, uh, the show we have called open mic on Whitehorse radio. Uh, he's a luthier and he builds and he's a craftsman and we've built three guitars over the last three years. So my focus has kind of shifted to that, but in terms of performance, my radio show is one of those few performance things I get to do. So, it is interesting for me that there is an incredible continuity from my youth and my family uh, to what I'm about today and what many of my kids are about, believe it or not. No, I totally get that. I totally get that. Creativity is, you know, with a C, I'd like to put a K on it because creativity is Crichton And and that very much is, you know, the experience that I have and then my family has. And if I passed on anything, I'd like to think it's, this This treasure trove of of creativity and creative instinct and creative thinking and you know just doing doing things you know
0: I totally understand that, and I just wanted to get the plug in for the show because I have to say. I've been in broadcasting for, gosh, how many years now? Probably 30 or 40 years. I have to say that the production values in your show are just blows everything out of the water. I mean, it's incredible. You're lucky to have Ken Green, your co-producer, I think he does a magnificent job of researching. But, you know, the big thing is you are the voice of the show and it does definitely show. And you've just had your 50th show, that's correct. Yeah, yeah?
1: we did our 50th. And, uh, and what's interesting is that it is a... Uh, almost a symbiosis, I guess, of sorts, a synergy, whatever you want to call it. Ken really didn't kick in until about show 14. Uh, Because I, uh, and I'm not going to go into the details, but he was a listener, and we would talk because we also worked together. By show 14, he was diving in, and the rest is history. So it's now our show. And uh, we've even gone through these little pivots about things, how the quality of the show is. We felt... At one point, we were becoming too much rock, and then we saw, decided we want to form. You know, focus on being more eclectic, and uh, which we've done. But it's lovely to work with someone. You know, he does the front end heavy lifting, but I'm part of the process because we talk the concepts of the show. We're working five shows out, and there's a constant communication. You know, during the day and even at night, of things relating to that. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. And suddenly here we turn around and we're going, what am we going to do for show 50? And, uh, and I thought about it. We actually talked about three different concepts. But finally, I kind of had this, uh, you know, gobsmacked moment where I just went, I think I got it. I said, why don't we just go back over the last 50 shows and pick songs from whatever show it is that we want and include a couple of listeners and other people. And that's what the show playlist became, which was really a reflection of the diversity of the show. And, uh, and that's part of the fun for Ken and I because it's a process and we're involved, but he does the front end lifting in a way, but I'm part of that. And then I do the back end, which is I do script the show and then I record it. I package it. I upload it. You know, I do that part of it. And so for both of us, it's a it's a nice shared process. And then when I finish doing it, of course, I send him the files and he has to listen because we verify what we call verify. And so we verify the files to make sure that the editing works, everything sounds fine, and we're good to go. And then we upload it uh, to Whitehorse and their system takes it and then plugs in everything else that I don't have to plug in like, you know, the breaks in, in, in between the segments. It's a very amazing. I mean, Gary Pearson, Chris Hughes have done an amazing job in terms of what they've set up. I, I do have to shout out to them. Just gotta, I gotta say that. No,
0: I I totally agree with you. And being part of the White Horse radio team myself, you know, for the last year or so, it's been an incredible experience. I want to take us a little bit back, you know, so I know that what you said was your musical experience and getting in bands, the influence there, but I really want to flip the coin a little bit and say,
1: what makes a great broadcaster in your mind? It's about understanding the context that you're broadcasting in. Why do you want to do that? Which means your purpose why do you want to do a music show? Why do you want to do a talk show? Why do you want it? Whatever it is. Why is it? So, you know, inside where your purpose is. So I think the combination of understanding the context and the purpose is where you start. And then you ask yourself, who is my audience? Like, who am I, who am I connecting? Because a show, when the, 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 the cumulative result of a show's experience is that somebody produces it and then an audience listens to it. That's what a show is. So what do you understand about who you are creating something for as well? So it's a shared thing because part of it is your own personal taste, but you're also going well, but it's also about, sharing this and, and having an audience. So it is important then, you know, to understand the context and your purpose, and then also have a sense of who is your audience? Why are you, what is it you're putting in front of them? Because otherwise you're jerking off. Yeah, You're just doing a show and you don't give a crap about, Oh, I don't care who's listening or what they're going through. I do care. So that affects what I have are policies and protocols about how I produce the show. And that's the other thing is what makes a good broadcaster is that they establish protocols and procedures and policies, creative policies. For example, I could play anything on a show. It has to have musicality. It's that kind of thing. But I have to know it also may, you know relates to the audience. Now, my target is I, I'd like to think I have a very eclectic show. So when you listen to my show, because it's an adventure, you don't know exactly what you're going to hear. Some of it, you may recognize some of it you may not, but the idea is that part of it's also the story, the topic that ties it all together. So you are an eclectic listener. You're okay to hear music. You're not familiar with, and you will also hear stuff. You are familiar. And we have listeners that have provided feedback for me, which is good that confirm that it remains on track with that purpose of the show. And so all of that connects us. So, and it's an enjoyment. So Ken's very sensitized and understanding of the purpose of the show. And he actually, we had to pivot because we felt we were becoming a rock show. Not to put down rock. Rock, though, is so ubiquitous. It sucks a lot of topics into it. But I said, I, I want to get back to a little bit more of the eclectic. And uh, so we did in the last quite a number of shows, we managed to pivot. And we got listener feedback that confirmed that. And they were happy about that because they, they like the adventure of the show. I'm going to hear about a topic could be musical could be social could be political could be whatever but all the songs speak to it and they're going to hear stuff that like i say maybe they know it and the certainly there's going to be something they hear that they don't know an artist they don't know and and there's something that they get out of that you know playing in the background as they check their emails or they're cooking their dinner because I don't assume that my listener sits down in a in a couch or a chair like a lazy boy and go, I'm going to listen to Michael now for an hour religiously. People don't do that. They, they put you on and you're an intrusive member of the experience that they're having. But what keeps them in the game with my show is that they kind of catch some of the stuff that connects everything and they go, wow, that's kind of a, a nice variety, it's an interesting show, to be banal about it, but I do, I want my show always to be interesting and enjoyable, it's entertainment, and uh, yeah, there's a little bit of an intellectual thing connected to it, but not to the point of a fault. So uh, with the advent of technology, and uh, we know
0: that it's really revolutionized what we do at home now. We don't necessarily need a studio uh, and proper complex and, you know, a big transmitter. We can literally set up for a hundred bucks with a great microphone and a laptop and away you go. So what's your opinion about how, you know, um, I suppose radio and even podcasting now, how that's interspersed into the, the, the world that you're in? Is it, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing?
1: No, no, I mean, technology is, is uh, very robust. And, and to your point that, yeah, anybody can have, uh, you know, the microphone on your computer and you have programs, you could do that. You can do that. But it's also a matter of understanding that are you going to listen to what you produced? because how does it sound or how does it, how is it viewed? How does it look? There is technology now that is very cost effective that people can access to record podcasts. And even if you can't have a completely soundproof venue, there are uh, uh, assets that you can purchase that provide for sound insulation in a very small space. So you can have a desk in a corner and have a good microphone. And here's the thing. What I say is, if you're going to invest in anything, certainly a good program that's high resolution in its delivery, but have a good mic because that's what's going to hear you. Exactly.
0: I totally agree. And
1: then it really is then up to whatever you got at the other end and listeners will have dinky little speakers and some of them will have fabulous systems. I can't be responsible for that. You're going to hear it the way you hear it, but I guarantee you that when I'm delivering is that the best resolution, highest quality that can be delivered through any system. So, you know, to me, what I've seen in, in technology is this evolution, you know, Moran's as their turret, and, you know, there's some and stuff that, you know, stuff that I've used. I have my own little studio, well, studio, I call it a workstation, but I, I, I'm in a venue where I'm isolated. I record early in the morning Everything is very quiet, you know. I, I haven't put soundproofing in. I don't have to. The, you know, I I've, I've kind of, you know, like I say, I I can do what I want to do. But the microphone is critical. The program you use, it's important. Can you import material? Can you mix? Can you, you know, how well can you separate tracks and how much you know, how much can you process on tracks and your own voice in terms of compression, equalization, etc.? I have, you know, I use Cubase. I have a lot of my friends who do it's a very established program, but it's respectable, but I didn't have to buy the top end. I, I bought something kind of in the middle, but what it gives me is everything I need. And, and the quality is also the speakers. What are you listening back on? Well, there are headphones, Will have good headphones, but you have to have reference speakers. Make sure you're hearing it in something external to a headphone in your ears, that it's it's being heard externally. And there are good systems out there. There's plenty out there. I have very small uh, monitor speakers, but I paid a good amount, I paid good money for them, but they they are perfect in delivering the range of sound that qualifies to me that I'm in the right domain and you know the other part of it is we're downloading for those of us doing podcasts we're downloading files from YouTube and sometimes you're getting 280p or 780 or maybe you're getting 1080 so at the end of the day part of the quality of your show is going to be affected by the resolution of the file that you got from another source and and so and sometimes you can hear it you know because tracks might be just a little muddier you know it's and not only that but when it goes through a radio station system just like ours at Whitehorse it has its own compression and so there's people don't understand there's a lot of processes just in terms of the signal of a show that goes from the point of the person who created it to the time when you actually hear it. Oh, absolutely. It's and and so, but what I would say is white horse, because Gary Pierce does an amazing job. He is, he is a propeller head. He is so savvy and, and, and he absolutely knows what he's doing. And, and so white horse I think enjoys an incredible quality of sound delivery and streaming which is what our final product is. So I want to take
0: listeners back a little bit on your journey, because, I mean, you, you indicated, obviously, you were musical at school. You had the bands going. You kind of got yourself launched into a career in music. And so, so where did that go? Did you go to university in the end, or did you just say, hey, I'm grade 12, i I've got my, my certificate, I'm out of school, I'm off on the road? What happened?
1: I actually finished college and went to uh, a training schools, National Theatre School. So instead of going to university, I went to something more eclectic. So National Theater School in Canada is a very prestigious school because I thought the theater was the thing I was going to do. That didn't work out ultimately. But in the process of my career all through, I went back to university and I studied uh, English, economics, uh, marketing. I never got a degree. But I had finished college. I graduated from college, then went to a training school, professional training school, and then from there my university was, and I, I was invited from the University of Victoria to either enter the economics honor program or the English honors program, which I never did, but I ended up studying at the University of Alberta, the University of Victoria, and, and I, I, but I never finished university. But, I got a lot of the way there. I mean, in the sense that if I had been more disciplined, I would have been able to finish with the degree. In a lot of ways, if I suddenly came into enough money to do it, I would probably do something like, "I am going to go finish something that I'd like to do." But I learned a lot. So, my education is what I say is it's it's college on steroids because at the end of the day, I added university studies to that to a significant degree, but I never finished with a degree from university. Uh, But I've kept learning. And in fact, there is so much online. I have learned many different skills since then online. I actually build websites. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I learned that online because I wanted to build an art gallery. And so I started watching videos on the internet, on YouTube. And I got into WordPress and now I do that. It's not that I want to do it every day. It's just, it's something I can do. Not at the highest level or people more advanced than I am. To me, one of my philosophies in life is that learning must be always in your life. Always enjoy learning. And so I've tried to pass it on to my children and that's how I live. I learned, I learned stuff today, actually, about acoustic guitars from Ken Green that I did not know. It was amazing. And that's what I love about it. Going, and so he actually spent about 20 minutes with me in, in my office space. And we all went through these guitars. You know what a DS is, what an what an SL is, what an L is, what a an OO is, O O M between gibson and martin and what all of those designations and and the thing is that's how i like to live and that's what i impart to my kids uh and anybody i talk to again to they learning is a mantra for me i'm always going to learn
0: you're halfway through listening to on, on the track with me david wilson My guest this week is Michael Crichton of White Horse Radio. Next, I wanted to ask Mike a little bit about what he did after college and where did his music career go?
1: Uh, (laughs) Okay, college. uh, Let me think now. I went to National Theatre School and then I ended up in a government program going in Northern Ontario That cycle to me ending up in the US and Los Angeles for a while doing and New York doing some pretty weird stuff. Oh, come on, tell us all about it. You can't leave it at that. Well, no, I well, it's a really I can't gosh. I I knew a guy who had met me when I was a teenager at college who promoted me. And he was a, a promoter and he was doing very well. And I ended up linking up with him later from that because he's the guy who got me in front of this audience of 10,000 people. And, and I was doing stuff anyway. So I met him later and he was in London, Ontario, and we're there and we ended up going to New York because he was working with a person by the name of David Buffum and the Buffums in the U S were this huge company of malls and Buffum was involved with tennis in New York. And he had a band in Los Angeles called Pegasus. I've heard of Pegasus. And my friend, this guy invited me to join him. He takes me to New York. We get picked up in a white Rolls Royce at the airport with the guy. I mean, it was like, I'm in La La Land. I'm a young guy going, fuck, I made it. No, you didn't. (laughs) But it looks like it. So he ends up taking me to us. I can't remember the hotel. It was a fabulous hotel in New York. They stuck me in a room because they couldn't bring me to whatever that tournament is in New York, the u S. open yeah, or the yeah another one whatever yeah. Yeah. yeah, so and so I ended up being stuck in the in the hotel with the cave went well not with the caveat, with the license, buy whatever you want. And so I was, so I didn't get to go to this tennis tournament, but so I'm here and the whole purpose of it was that I was supposed to meet David Buffum and he would decide if I could work with Pegasus in Los Angeles. I never met, I don't think I met David Buffum, but I, I ended up getting the job. The next thing I know I'm in LA and I work with Pegasus in LA in Orange County, for the most part, and that was a rock and roll ride. I mean, that was—I was too young to know how to handle it at the end of the day. Yeah. Anyway, from there I came back to Canada. I ended up in the Troubadour. I got this band, the Troubadour in L.A. Anyway, ended coming back to to Canada, went back to Ottawa, and then I ended up eventually in Fort McMurray because I've been accepted to a school of theater and in France. Right. So the link to Fort McMurray. So I went to Fort McMurray to make money because a family that had lived, lived uh, in where I was from in Montreal in the South shore, we had a family, they'd moved to Fort McMurray and I needed to make money. And they said, well, why don't you come live with us? And you can get yourself going and all that. And I went to Fort McMurray and that's where I got into radio a year later. Right. You know, this is
0: very interesting. So, for listeners all around the world, Fort McMurray, if we were to sum it up, is the tar
1: sands, the oil yeah, that's capital right. of Alberta, and hugely controversial. Like, uh, totally. Even Leonardo DiCaprio. And I mean, yeah, I know. So, that, you know, it was. Huge oil country.
0: Yeah, it was black, black gold. If you wanted, to, if you were a single guy and you want to make your money a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you can go there and do it, and you can end up buying a house outright, that type of thing. So, what that did, though, it gave two things: it gave you, you know, fluidity in your money. You had some disposable income. Yeah. But the, what was this about the getting into the radio? So, how did you get into the radio? What's the details behind that?
1: Well, while I was working, believe it or not, with a concrete crew at night. I would do the cultural thing. So I had friends at the coffee house. I actually started a theater group with a, my roommate. And so I was very culturally involved. I even had a a show on the local cable TV station called Open Mic. That's where it originated.
0: It's amazing. I've got to stop you there for a second. It's amazing where the names of our shows come from because my On Another Track came right from the late 70s, early 80s. I had that way back then, and it still stayed with me all the way through. So what year was this, though?
1: This would have been 1978. Um, oh, early days then, eh? Early days in radio. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was early days. In 79, I got into radio. But in, during that year, I had become very involved in the cultural side of things, even though I was working in construction during the day and then a year later i got a call from the station manager of the radio station because i knew her through my cultural endeavors and she says i have a job for you that either you can do or you can't do and i'd like to talk to you about it and it was about being the creative director of the radio station which means the guy who writes the commercials and that's how i got into radio ah interesting just like that just just like that at a time that doesn't happen anymore, but in those days, that happened, and I got into it and of course, I had a recording background, and I started producing commercials in addition to writing them and that really developed my career as a writer producer, which was not the the norm in radio, which I carried to Edmonton and ended up parlaying. I was the best paid creative writer and producer in edmonton between 84 and 87 i was making more than any other guy in my sa- in my position because i was delivering and i had an agreement with the station and then from there i became independent and then you know life carried on yeah, so so again,
0: I'd love to back the bus up a little bit there because that, that's what I call kind of old-fashioned radio, you know, where you do literally everything from the start to the end. And oh yeah, no, it
1: definitely yeah.
0: It gives you a great grounding that allows you to do practically anything when it comes to putting a show together. You know, producing it. And
1: I had the license. I had license. I had a lot of license. And so okay, so this station. What was the name
0: of the station in Fort McMurray?
1: CJOK, Fort McMurray. I almost feel like saying it was a 1,000-watt radio station. And, yeah, it was a 1,000-watt radio station in northern Alberta called CJOK. And it was part of a group that included uh, a couple of other small cities in Alberta. And uh, Stu Morton was a part of that. Actually, a lot of the guys that I know in Edmonton, Clarence Shields, for example, uh, a lot of people connected to that to that network. And uh, But I ended up at Kissing the year before country went cool in Edmonton. Like this is the one privilege that I've had in my life. I ended up at a radio station, major market in, in terms of Canadian context, it was major market. Kissing country, which was low on the totem pole of ratings. The year before country went cool, Clint Black, Garth Brooks, all that stuff started to happen. And I was working with a guy who had been the number one guy in radio in Canada and in his day, Bob McCord, and so I ended up working there and then everything exploded and kissing country contemporary country became an an entity of incredible force and I was part of that, and my wave just kept pushing it forward, and that's why I was able to negotiate an incredibly lucrative contract uh, with them, an experience that I can just say I was lucky to be there when it happened, when country literally went cool. It was one year after I joined the station. And uh, since then, you know, all of us have gone on in separate ways and so on. And I maintained a a relationship with radio radio, right up until, I still do in many respects, but uh, I had always, even from the outside, I still have colleagues and things I do and so on that do connect to radio. That's what led me to Whitehorse and thanks to you because I was doing some stuff with some great people in Edmonton, but I really felt there was something missing. And when you introduced me to Chris and and Gary and what they were doing in Wiltshire, they were about traditional radio and that meant something to me. And so I'm hoping, and I, I, I strive for that, that my show is always honoring that context of what we believe is really good radio. good radio. excellent radio, real radio. Even though it's online, we are radio. I mean I I, I get a thrill every Tuesday, I listen to my show. I know it sounds self-serving. I do it to, I, I, but I do it to verify the levels and all that but I listen to it and then I hear, I hear the bumpers and the jingle. So do I.
0: I do the same.
1: And I hear the newscast, and I go, "That's real radio." And what we are all delivering, all of us, on on the uh, you know on the Whitehorse Radio roster. I think it's wonderful what Chris and and Gary have been, you know, striving for, and I think everyone works to that threshold. I think we all have the same, you know, commitment and you listen to the shows and they are all amazingly well done. You know, they're passionate. They're, the content is thought out, you know, it's, 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 it's shows that can make a connection with the audiences and we don't have a thousand podcasters. We have this, really neat group. And I like that Chris and Gary or picky you don't get added onto that list unless you got something that really fits with the context of what I think is real radio.
0: You make a really, really good point there, but this is where I want to dissect real radio. Okay. Yeah. Where, where in your opinion, did it all go wrong in the nineties? What, what do you think was the kind of death knell of what I call real traditional radio?
1: I think the death was inevitable from the very beginning. And I have been a very vocal uh, person around this over decades. The industry, the broadcast industry specifically as it relates to radio, but this also embraces television. And in fact, it also embraces print and to some degree it can also embrace what's going on online. But at the end of the day, it was all about profit. And as a result of profit, the, the the paradigm that evolved did not value all of the creative content within the bin. So, yes, the morning guys, the anchors, you know, there were a selected few in the industry that would be invested into. And I understand that, but the rest of it, they didn't care. And eventually advertising revenues kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking over the decades to the point where we began to see consolidation. So now stations were buying groups of stations and they kept downsizing. Sales departments were shrunk. Creative departments. Oh yeah. The writers. Oh yeah. They shrunk that. They even started to squeeze on the number of producers. And I worked in that environment because I actually eked out a living as a freelancer brought in, I can't believe I almost was also a prostitute. In <laughs> <moment>. but, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it was like, you know, they just, they kept grinding away at it. And, and as a result, they had to keep consolidating and they forgot, certain values being in a sense did they ever understand them, to be honest, that advertising communication, the impact it has, what is the understanding of, of advertising communication within the group of people that are doing the work for you that are creating uh, commercials. Copywriters didn't understand marketing advertising. They just, they wanted to make something sound okay. And that was my, criticism for for decades and 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 i tick people off well yeah but you know
0: what's nice about you is you you have a point of view and you very succinctly put it across and you you stand your line i mean i think that's an admirable uh you know attribute to have in these days because so many people don't stand the line they don't get behind what they feel and believe in and get passionate about it and I think that's what you do. And it's reflected totally in the program that you do. But one thing I wanted to just ask you as well, do you think there's an opportunity here, and I think we're on the the cusp of this, you know, when you look at back at the history of real radio and where it really kind of started from, I mean, we had the BBC in the UK, very staid. We called it anti. But what was lovely about America was that these little radio stations, AM stations started up, in the sticks, and they were usually a family who are passionate about getting, you know, their kids on the radio and and you know performing or getting out a message. Or it could be a religious radio. Do you see that now with the kind of technology with podcasting and things like that that we could get back to something like that that is much more organic and it's not all about profit? I think that's
1: an interesting question, actually, and I agree that there are things that cycle through that are similar. I mean, radio in its day, you know, from 1927 and as it began to evolve and became a mass medium. And it's funny because the reason it became a mass medium is because the people in the radio industry that had control of all the technologies and there were various technologies, looked at the auto industry and recognized how the auto industry had consolidated to create mass production. The radio guys decided we need to standardize radio technology because we can mass distribute signals. And then it became more where the revenue came from would be advertising and so on, because you were now reaching millions upon millions of people. And that's exactly what happened. Here we are, though, in a world where we're in, it's kind of like, I don't know how to put it. We're in a world where anybody can be doing a podcast. And and the thing I recognize, I go, man, I, I feel like I'm in this humongous library. And I'm that little book down in the corner. Because, I mean, who the hell is ever going to read that book? The reality is that we are not in a process where that proliferation benefits us, where we can begin to take advantage of this growth. We already have the access, but it's a different science as to how we access it. And the thing I think, and the the way I produce and the way I think is that I'm, I don't know if I would ever have thousands of listeners or millions of listeners. What's important to me is the process and, and putting together a good product in conjunction with other people who are like-minded, and it's a, content, a concentric circle thing. And if we can build influence together and grow our audiences, that's great. But to me, yeah, there are still going to be people, YouTubers, influencers, thing, people that come along, it'll suddenly be the flavor of the month and They'll be huge. And some of them will make millions of dollars uh, doing what they're doing for the rest of us. who we're doing something like we're doing with radio. I like what white horse represents. We represent a consistent uh, value of what good radio is about. And if it means that we only have so many listeners, it all is going to be driven by the fact that the rest of us being the people who present and produce the shows that we do it because we're committed to it and we have a love for it and i and that's where it is for me i i don't think unless look unless we get some huge investment and we go we're going to advertise well you can but the problem is that frankly it's tough to make any expenditure really deliver the return that would help grow something. So unless we get a real life zombie to do a radio show, a real dead zombie, like someone from Walking from the Dead, and we have a zombie on our station, maybe we'll get attention. We we have our audiences and we build. But I think that for me at this point, I realize that, Really, it's a crapshoot. I guess the only way I can summarize what goes on in the internet in terms of marketing and product development and and, etc. Is that really it it is a crapshoot. But the more you have to invest in analysis and marketing, and that does take money, you may have a better chance of succeeding with whatever it is that you're going to go to market with online. And social media, you know, it's it's an organic thing. It changes, you know, what's what's good this year is not that good next year. You know, are you doing TikTok? What are you doing on TikTok? I'm not doing TikTok. If I had the money, I'd hire somebody to do TikTok. You know, it's that kind of thing. Because I'm, I'm going to turn 67 in a few days. I'm going to do what I know. And I'm good. I've stayed current. You know, I understand what the online landscape represents. But what pulls me into this conversation is the fact that radio has always been a part of my life. And I'm happy to keep it that way.
0: I am. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. With you. Now, you did mention something about a book. And uh, I know a little bird told me that you had become an author. Now, when did this all happen?
1: 2015. I had started to conceptualize a book called A Brilliant Idea Every 60 Seconds, which is about generating ideas. And it was based on my methodology that I developed in the 90s. And I began to uh, refine it. And then I decided maybe I should write about it. And then I ended up working with a company in Chicago uh, called Nightingale Conant. And what's interesting about them is that Earl Nightingale is a radio legend, not that there are necessarily a lot of people who know it. And, uh, and Conant, Lloyd Conant, was a marketing, early marketing guru. And he suggested that Earl should start recording his speeches, hence the the, the secret and other things that are still some of the best sellers to this very day in that genre of, of sort of self-made self-education kind of thing. And so uh, I'd worked with this company in Chicago, that company, and it was the CEO, uh, Gary Chalmers, who said, you know, you should, you got to write your book. And I ended up writing the book. And then I, my literary agent, as it turned out, at the time when I was ready to take it forward, I called uh, I called him, sorry, Gary Chapel. I called Gary Chappell and he said, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to Dan Strutzel in Chicago, who had left the company as well. Like they retired and moved on. And Dan was a literary agent. And I sent the manuscript and within a month I had a publishing deal on a New York. That's incredible. That's incredibly quick. No, I mean, that's just luck of the draw. And uh, so here I was, I had a book published out of New York and it was ultimately translated into Vietnamese. Can you believe it? I, I can't
0: believe that, but there must've been a good
1: reason for it. Yes, I, was still, I was thrilled when I found that out. I have a copy and, and it kind of translates like uh, a brilliant idea for 60 seconds is one idea, one minute. Is it still available? Oh Yeah. It's on all platforms and you can get a, a paperback, et cetera, Amazon audible. It's I guess. They actually paid me to do the audio version. Oh, super! So it's available in all formats. And so when I was, I've been in a couple of bookstores of note, uh, but uh, bookstores are—that's a different kettle of fish now. You know, so it's—it's it's more about being online because it totally is. Yeah, totally uh, you know, is. the bigger part of the people who are accessing books or accessing them online, whether they're ordering a paperback, which you can but most of them are getting a Kindle or they're getting a, an audio download or whatever. And it did generate a lot of activity for me when it first came out for the, for a period of about five years. That's incredible. Well, you know, now, so, you know, Michael
0: Crichton, broadcaster, radio DJ or radio broadcaster, you know, author, what else is left in the old guy? You know, is there still steam left in the old uh, dog yet?
1: Well, I keep telling Ken because we built these guitars the music side of me needs to resurrect itself. I haven't been diligent enough because I, I, I've written a lot of music. I've written songs. You know, I do all kinds of genres when I've, I produced a, a number of things myself, but even though I have all the technology now and all of the, the instruments that I would ever want to have, what's left is that's what I want to do. And And because my, my birthday's coming up, I thought, well, The birthday present I should give to myself is that on that day I got to start playing with music and recording and and get back into that world because that has always been a wonderful world. Hopefully I will get the discipline and the, the motivation to get there. But I think I'm pretty close, so, you know. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. And, and, you know, that's great to hear
0: that you still got a passion in your heart. And uh, yeah, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. So um, I suppose really from your perspective, if, um, and this is the question I always like to ask people with this maturity behind them and, you know, this experience, if you kind of met yourself on a, a bus in Montreal or wherever city you were when you were 18, what advice would you give yourself this time?
1: Uh. You know, I have to be honest. I would, if I was going to say one thing, is be more mindful of your finances. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good one. Beyond that, have fun. But, but, but the truth of it is, if it was anything, it would be more mindful of really of finances in a way. Uh, I wasted money in my life and, and, you know, I was lucky in many respects because I was able to find, you know, ways to sustain myself. But, you know, I, I could have done a better job that way. Really, the rest of it, I kind of go, you know what? I don't know if i change anything. I, I have no regrets, if you will, about what my life has been about. Um you know, no matter what one would suggest, it would hopefully be as much of an adventure. So, I mean, that may sound really simplistic as a response, but that's kind of it really for me.
0: Uh, I love the simple answers. I love the fact that you put adventure in there because clearly your life has been one of adventure and one of quite a lot of enjoyment. I mean, you struggled.
1: And I paid the price. I mean, I paid the price. I mean, you know, my life hasn't been all roses and, but at the end of the day, here I am, and I go, I am the sum total of what happened, and and I go, you know what, that's got to count for something, right there.
0: It certainly is. It certainly is, Michael Crichton. I want to just thank you so much for coming on on the track. I know we got there in the end, which was wonderful, and I love the the fact that you gave us a a small a small portion of your life. I know there's a lot more there to dig underneath. But I want to thank you for your time, and I just wish you the best of luck in your endeavors in the future. Because there's going to be
1: many. Well, and to you too, because you're being very adventurous, and you've got some new adventures you're following. So you're no slouch yourself, my friend. Oh, you
0: know, it's a bit like you. I'm, I'm, a, I have the energy levels sometimes, and then they, ooh, you know,
1: and Well that's yeah, and that's what we deal with. But we've got each other. Just give me a call when you need a boost, you know. Oh yes. well that's very true very true
0: listen take it steady and keep building those guitars because i'm loving them
1: thank you always a pleasure dude cheers cheers
0: you've been listening to on another trap with me david wilson my guest this week was michael crichton from white horse radio a talented broadcaster with nearly 50 years under his belt who's still looking for the adventure in radio Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a Brickham production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.